Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us tonight at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. Uh, CIMC is a place of refuge, so we ask that you please turn off all phones and other electronic devices and refrain from writing or recording during the evening. Uh, please note that there will not be a break between the talk and a short question and answer, so we ask that you stay until the end of the discussion period. All are welcome to have tea in the dining room downstairs after the talk, and there are hearing assistant assistive devices in the back of the room if you need them. Uh, at the end of this evening's talk, please remove the front row of cushions and the back row of cushions, and then move the chairs forward until they meet just about they meet the back row, the new back row of the cushions. Uh, the following are some center updates. Uh, beginning this Thursday, June 9th, Madeline Klein will lead a practice group titled, What is Practice? Class will meet Thursdays from June 9th to June 23rd from 7 p.m. to 8.45 p.m. Uh, register online. Uh, Greg Scharf will lead a one-day retreat entitled, An Independent Abiding this Saturday, June 11th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. You can also register online for that as well. And on Sunday, June 12th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., please join fellow volunteers to care for the natural beauty of our center at the Spring Gardening Day. All levels of experience are welcome to join at any time throughout the day. Refreshments are also provided. Lastly, Betty Burks will lead the beloved community circle this Sunday from 10 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., all are welcome to join in cultivating consciousness regarding race and racism as it relates to our spiritual journeys. To learn more about our upcoming programs and our schedule, please visit www.cambridgeinsight.org. Uh, tonight, George Mumford is offering a Dharma talk titled Wisdom Begins in Wonder. George Mumford has taught meditation since 1986 in a range of environments from prisons to Harvard Medical School. He's also a sports psychology consultant and a personal and organizational development consultant. In 2003, George was one of several teachers invited to participate in Healing Through Great Difficulty, a meeting between His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, former prisoners, and meditation teachers. George currently works with Coach Phil Jackson and has consulted on each of the NBA championship teams Jackson coached. He works with high school, college, and Olympic athletes, inmates, and corporate executives. George is a sought-after public speaker at both business and athletic conferences, nationally and internationally, and is the author of The Mindful Athlete, Secrets to Pure Performance. Thank you, George. Okay. So what's up? <laughs> I bet you didn't expect that. <laughs> Anyway, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, you might say I'm homegrown. And it's interesting because I've, I've been pretty busy these days since my book came out last. Well, I was busy before, but I'm really busy now since my book came out in uh, 2015, uh, The Mindful Athlete, Secrets to Pure Performance. And I've been fortunate enough to be on a lot of venues and interestingly enough I was supposed to have ankle surgery last Wednesday but it got postponed until tomorrow so I forgot I even had this talk and I got a call from Adam saying oh so what do you want for Wednesday uh, you know what's the setup are you going to lead the sitting or not and I said uh oh I forgot about it so anyway um I've never been a lost at, for a loss of words, so I have plenty to talk about. So I have been reflecting and thinking about what I should, what, what the topic should be, because there's so many things that, that need to be talked about. So I chose uh, Wisdom Begins in Wonder, and I have to admit that it's a quote from Socrates, and that my whole intention of, of talking about Wisdom Begins in Wonder is that for my personal experience on, on this path, I came in and what really drew me to it was this um, need to be intellectually stimulated or what I call now, sometimes I even gave a talk called Pursuing Excellence and Wisdom with Grace and Ease. That's the game I'm playing, that's, that's what I'm up to. And I realized that working with people and even times during my practice where you come in here and you have to meditate and you got to be solemn, and you know you're walking slow, and 
you know, you don't want to get too excited. You don't want to talk about how your practice is going because around here we have a, an aversion to ambition to the degree that we don't really talk about how our practice, how do we take our practice to the next level? Can you imagine that? Well, yeah, well, I'm going to levitate maybe for half an hour, <laughs> something like that, because a lot of the learning that happens here is what I call, what is called non-declarative or implicit learning. It's learning that happens on a download or subconsciously. We're not aware of it. And so as a result, you know, people will sit and they'll do this practice and they'll be thinking, well, nothing's happening. You know, people call it navel-gazing. I was watching a commercial um, the other day and had um, this point guard that used to play at Kentucky who now plays for the Washington Wizards. His name is John Wall, and he's sitting there cross-legged with his, with, his, with his, you know, knees way up in the, you know, not even touching the floor, and he has two basketballs, and he's saying something to the effect that I'm trying not to think, or there's no thinking. I'm trying to block the mind. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I've not been able to do that. <laughs> How is he able to do that? But really what it comes down to is ignorance, not knowing what meditation is, because meditation is not uh, not thinking. I don't know if you notice a lot. There's a lot of thinking going on when you sit and just be still. And it's, there's a reason why we talk about right thinking or right thoughts or right attention, so that thinking is very important in this process, not only in the formal sitting, but when we're going throughout our day. So... This whole idea of wisdom, this whole idea of wonder, I just wanted to create this vision of possibility for us so that we understand. Because when you do this practice, which I would say mindfulness is the heart of the practice, and, and it's interesting because I've been studying this for decades, and it's very interesting. How do you talk about something that's hard to talk about or a challenge to talk about? So it's like... So we all, how many, anybody in here who does not know how to ride a bike? Everybody in here knows how to ride a bike, right? So how do you explain that to somebody? And what is it about riding a bike that once you learn how to ride it, you never forget, but you can't explain it? That's what we call non-declarative learning. So there's other areas of our experience where that happens. And so really being, being clear about that and really understanding that sometimes we're doing things and we don't see the results immediately. And that's what this path is about. It's, it's, there needs to be some patience. There needs to be some trust. So to me, I think it's very skillful to start off in, with this sense of wonder, or this sense of um, curiosity, interest, uh, joy. Um, I like to refer to my process as, as a joyful journey of self-discovery. But of course... I'm not just discovering who I am or my uniqueness, but I'm also discovering how I am in the universe and how I am relating to myself and other in relationship. And this idea of, of being in service or trying to make things uh, better or trying to alleviate suffering because the Buddha really talked about uh, suffering and the end of suffering. That's it. Suffering and the end of suffering. So what we're doing, basically what we're doing is we're looking at how we suffer. And why is that so important? Because if we don't know we're suffering, we can't alleviate it. Or we can't get on a path that talks about how to alleviate it. So one part of, of wisdom is what we call right view. And right view is is the idea of the law of cause and effect or karma, but it's also what we call the Four Noble Truths. And the first one is the law of suffering. That we all suffer. I don't really care who you are, how much money you have, what sexual orientation or what religion you have. You know, we all are born, we get old, we age, we get ill, and we die. We're not a, beyond that. And not even, not even having to go to that extreme Everything that's happening is always changing. And so we have to deal with this, this transiency, transiency or this idea that everything is always changing. So the Buddha, who is um, this interesting, who's a person, figured out how to 
become awakened or to be awake. And so, believe it or not, one of the things that we need to get clear on is that having a human birth is very special and that we all have Buddha nature. We all have a divine spark. I like to call it the masterpiece within. And I refer to Michelangelo and the idea that, that when he was creating these, these masterpieces out of these blocks of marble, they, you know, they had media in those days, and they said, uh, how do you do that? And he said, all I do is chip away to get to the masterpiece that's already there. So we need to start off, instead of original sin, and I'm not getting on Catholics or anything like that, uh, because actually I have a friend, uh, Matthew Fox, who was a Dominican uh, priest who came up with a book called The Original Blessing. So it's this idea, it's just a point of view. It's, it's this idea that we have Buddha nature. And even in the Tibetan Dzogchen tradition, they talk about the idea that being awake, being peace is our, our natural way of being. And so let me see if I can... So... I have proof of that. This is little, little Georgie, and see how happy I am? I have Buddha nature there. <laughs> you know, so I think when we come in this world, we, we, kind of, uh, we kind of got it going on. We smile, and you, know, we can, you can give them a rattle, and they can play with that for two, two hours and still be happy. If you watch children learn how to walk, they get up, and they fall down, and they get up with more enthusiasm. We can learn something from them. Because I would guarantee you, if we had to learn how to walk, every time we fell down, we would turn around to see who saw us fall. And we probably had this idea in our head, we shouldn't fall more than four or five times, and we're not making progress. So it's this idea of this living in that sense of wonder, that sense of excitement, and that in terms of right view and understanding the causes, you know, there's suffering, there's a cause, which is attachment, clinging, grasping, as well as ignorance. Ignorance is a big part of that. So you can see how wisdom is an antidote to that. And then there's a, there's a, a way out. There's a way of uh, letting go of suffering. And then there's a path, what we call the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the path that, that leads to the alleviation and ultimately to, you know, like the Buddha getting to awakening. So we have Buddha nature and this idea of being here and, and getting the teachings, that's the Dhamma, or the teachings. That's the, the way that he talked about, including the, the Noble Eightfold Path. But he also talked about the Sangha. And a big part of this process is to do what we're doing. So even though Adam talked about uh, this idea that, um, that I'm going to talk and then have a short Q&A, that's not going to happen tonight. I'd rather talk a little bit than have... Engagement. I like, I quoted Socrates, I like the Socratic style where it's back and forth. So obviously you can ask questions, but I, I have the right to ask questions or to, or to have to engage and maybe help uh, go deeper or at least get clarity around what's being asked. Does that make any sense? You, you guys, can, can, can you folks roll with that? So that's the idea. So I'll talk a little bit more. So I'll talk obviously about wonder, and there's a gentleman by the name, I think his name is uh, Eugene Fink. He says, when he spoke of wonder in the face of the world, and he said, what, what does this mean? It implies an approach that can shatter the taken-for-grantedness of, of our everyday reality. Wonder is the unwilled willingness to meet what is utterly strange in what is most familiar. It is the willingness to step back and let things speak to us a passive receptivity to let the things of the world present themselves in their own terms. So I'll, I'll read that again because it's pretty profound. It's, it's, it implies an approach that can shatter the taken-for-grantedness of our everyday reality, which is another way of saying our mechanical way of uh, perception or our automatic pilot. Uh, wonder is the unwilled willingness to meet what is utterly strange and what is most familiar. It is the willingness to step back and let things speak to us, a passive receptivity to let things of the world present themselves in their own terms. Now, that's a really good definition of mindfulness because I talk about it um, on occasion and in my book. I definitely talk about it, but what I, I refer mindfulness 
I refer mind to mindfulness as the eye of the hurricane, the E-Y-E, -E, not the I, but I could say the eye of the eye. That could be, that sounds kind of cute. But the idea is that if the hurricane is, is in the middle of the hurricane, in the eye of the hurricane, there's clear sky and there's peace, there's stillness, there's ease, there's love, there's everything there. And even though there's this tornado or hurricane or whirlwind, that in the middle of that, there's this peace and ease. And I would say that, that that's what this practice helps us to do is create space between stimulus and response. So that even though we create space between stimulus and response, we get to dwell in our own place of rest, in our own eye of the hurricane, in our own Buddha nature or, or Christ consciousness or whatever you want to call it, divine spark. There's, there's a space there. And the interesting thing is, if you look for it, you won't find it. There's nowhere to be found. So it's nowhere and everywhere. Kind of paradoxical, but it can be felt. It can be experienced. We can become aware of it. And so this idea of, of this space between stimulus and response was addressed by Viktor Frankl, who is um, an Austrian uh, psychiatrist and survivor of Auschwitz, the concentration camp. He said, between a stimulus and a response, there is a space, and that space is our power to choose our response. And our response lies the growth in our, our growth and our freedom. The last of human freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. So I would like to refer to this as resilience sometimes, or this idea of um, strong self-efficacy belief. It's this idea that no matter what happens to us, Think about how profound this is, no matter what happens to us. If we can create space, because when there's no space between stimulus and response, we're an automatic pilot. We are driven by our beliefs, by our, um, our habitual uh, uh, ways of seeing and being, our addictions, um, our shoulds, whatever it is, even the culture. So the idea of realizing that we all... If we train and in this process, what we are really creating is space between stimulus and response so that we can choose our response. But part of choosing it is really understanding and knowing. This is where wisdom, we talk about wisdom, and you might think about it in three ways besides what I said. Information, so we have to have the right information. Well, what are we doing? How does this work? What are the basic principles, uh, the, the, the reflection of the intellect, how do we wisely reflect and say, okay, so I'm about to do this, what's the best approach? Or if we call clear comprehension, what's my intention? And that's, that's why we need to know, what am I thinking, what's my intention? Because there's certain intentions that are unwholesome, and then when they have to do with greed, hatred, delusion, or what we call the hindrances around here, if it's sensual desire or ill will, which includes a lot, or I like to just say hate and love, I mean fear and love, basically, but you have the ill will, you have the sloth and torpor where there's indifference and the mind is sluggish, we don't really care. We're indifferent to what's going on. So on one level, we want something, so we're going to move towards it. On the other level, the ill will, we're going to move away from it because it's perceived to be unpleasant. And then when it's neither, it can be indifference or it could be equanimity where there's an interest, we're paying attention, but we're engaged even though we're not moving to or away from, we're being still. We're, being, we're holding that, that, that space or we're coming out of that place of rest or that eye of the hurricane. Does that make sense? And so this is what we need to understand is that, that how we develop wisdom is we have to be able to, to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because I don't know about you, but looking at my stuff is not comfortable. When I look at my, my stuff, how I'm creating suffering, my first thing is aversion. Oh, I don't want to look at that. But it's only by looking at it, but I have to have a quality of interest, of a sense of wonder or mystery, like, oh, well, what is this? Oh, this is interesting. What is this? That's a different... So that's when we have the, when the, when we have, uh, the right view and when we have the right intention or the right motivation on how to look at things that are hard to look at, but if we can just step back and just watch it as if we're watching, you know, because there's the watcher or the observer observing from this quiet place where we're just seeing things, 
even though there's an impulse to move or move toward or away, we can train ourselves to just just let it be and just allow it and then let allow it to speak to us in its own language. And by doing that, by not trying to get rid of it, not interrupting it, but letting it speak to us, we start to understand how it arises, how it passes away. We, we start to understand how we get stuck. And we have to learn how we get stuck or how we're causing suffering before we can change it. And so this whole process of creating space between stimulus and response, we need this positive energy or what Sean Accord calls um, positive genius or what the um, positive psychology calls optimism and hope. We need to have that energy that allows our cognitive functioning to be able to withstand the cognitive dissonance, the, the unpleasantness, so that we can actually create the ability to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. So there's a space between stimulus and response, and then there's this idea of being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And of course, even though I'm saying that, it's really up to you to have that experience, because before, unless you do that, you're going to say, George, I don't believe that. Saying, I don't want you to believe it. I want you to check it out. That's what wisdom is. It's, it's investigation, exploring. Well, is this so? What is this? How am, how, why am I looking at things this way? How am I experiencing this? Am I really present? Am I letting it speak to me? Or am I interrupting and, and projecting my stuff onto it? Because that's basically what we do. Something happens, and then we interpret what it means. And so in that process, if you want to talk about faithful trust, we, we're either looking, if we have the, the, the viewpoint of the glass is half full, then we're going to see abundance. There's going to be a, an ability to open to the full experience. But if we see the glass is half empty, we're in survival mode, we're going to be in tunnel vision. So we're going to be stuck on channel seven. And there's a thousand channels we could be on. And if you're on channel seven, you're going to get what the programming is for channel seven. But the first thing we got to know is, oh, there's more channels. Oh, that's interesting. And then we can, we can open it up and we can start to see how we're seeing things. And, and the neuroscience um, and the research that Sean Accor has done is consistent with this. He said, the research says that 90% of our long-term happiness is predicated on how the brain interprets our experience. 90%, not 10%, 90%. So something happens. You can interpret it in a certain way where it gives you power and you get clarity and you learn from it. Or you can look at it like and as if you're in survival mode. And the interesting thing is we can't, a cell, and we're a bunch of cells, cannot be in a survival mode and growth mode at the same time. It's either, it's either or. It's neither. It's not both. It's either or. And so this idea of just really starting to sit down and be still and know that being a body and just sitting and breathing and then really thinking about and being aware of how we are seeing things. So what's the view? What's the intention? What's the, the and this is where the mindfulness comes in because you can look at mindfulness. Mindfulness looks like steadiness of mind. What does that mean? That means that we don't forget this present moment because that's the only time we have, the only time we live, and we don't forget what we're doing. So if you're listening to me, which I hope you are, um, you can be listening to me in a way where you're interpreting what I'm saying or you're just letting the words speak to you in their own language. And as you might experience that, to do that, it takes a lot of vulnerability to just act like you don't know anything and just listen to it with a beginner's mind. It's difficult, especially you've been doing this for a long time. I know this stuff. Is, let me compare it. And that's what we do. We compare what we know to what is being offered. But I hate to say this, but there's a lot more we don't know than what we know. And then there's even way more of what we don't know we don't know. So if you think about it that way, it's, it's like, okay, so let's, why don't I just, and this is what I had to do because my best thinking couldn't stop me from getting high and drunk. So I had to sit down and say, okay, George, act like you don't know anything, because you don't. And by not knowing and just being aware and being still and knowing, I started seeing things. So what does this process do? So with the mindfulness of being in the moment, steadiness of mind, that's actually concentration. When we can be in this moment and we can keep remembering or keep 
coming, coming back or remembering the present moment and being present, we have steadiness of mind. And then I already talked about the mirror mind where we let things speak to us in, our, in its own terms. But then there's the idea of, okay, the wisdom piece is what's skillful, what's unskillful, what's the principles, what's the basic fundamentals. So on some level when we sit, it's, it's helpful to read and think about the practice, to listen to talks, watch videos, whatever information we can get, because that's one part of it. The second part is intellect, as I talked about, we can wisely reflect. Is that so? Does that make sense? You know, reflect on it. And then the third piece, which is what we're trying to get, is the direct experience or intuition. So if somebody says there's gravity and you jump up and you come down, that's not information. That's a fact. That's experience. Okay, gra- there's gravity. And it's the same. It's how do we check, uh, test this out? And when we watch things, if you look at what, how you, what you experience and compare it to what you expected, you might notice that, that there's a difference there. And this uh, physicist, um, I think his name was Bohm, he said that you could do that with everything. If you look at what you're actually experiencing versus what you expected, that difference will be learning and that there's no end to how much we can learn and how much we can evolve. It's infinite how we can do that. And so this idea of understanding that if we bring this sense of wonder, this interest, excitement, this joy, this enthusiasm, this living in, in the uh, mystery that we're actually practicing what we call right effort, which is to understand that when there's an unwholesome mind state like greed, hatred, or delusion, that we need to abandon it. And the way to abandon it is really important because if we just try to do something in order to get rid of it, it doesn't go away, but we need to be able to see it. And so that's one part of it. The other part is to prevent it from arising. And it's going to come through one of the sense doors. So that's the second part of right effort. The third part is to how to bring a wholesome mind state into existence, which is what I'm actually talking about when you start off with a sense of wonder, interest, love, joy, um, you know, and just being uh, interested in it. Uh, then once you have that mind state, then you're probably going to see things clearer. And then the fourth part is how to maintain it and to perfect it so that we can hang out and wonder more often than we would ordinarily hang out there. So, Because we do have free will to the degree that we can really choose what we focus on or what we hold in mind. But you might notice when you try this, the mind has a mind of its own. So what we need to do is train it to be able to to be where we want it so that we start to understand how to direct our attention on what to focus on. So we could focus on what we don't have or we could focus on what we have or what's present. Does it make sense what I'm talking about? So this idea of of wondering, just thinking about that, and I do want to mention some of the stuff that's going on. Um, Obviously, I don't know how many of you, you probably all heard that Muhammad Ali passed away. And, you know, and it's interesting because boxing, most people, I think in the last 20 years or so, probably don't remember him as a boxer. But his, his, what he's done off of the, you know, outside of the ring has been really impressive. And I had the opportunity when I was in college and he was banned from boxing. He came to UMass where I was a student and he talked to us. And it was very interesting. He had charisma and just the idea of seeing his 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 compassion he had for people, but also his courage of having that illness and continuing to be out there and continuing to raise money for others. So he went way beyond even his own um, religion. Uh, He went way beyond that. So there's something there that that we can't really name it, but there's, there's a power there, and we all have that ability to have an impact on others. That way we can, we can connect to that energy. And then, of course, uh, I, I think Hillary is the presumptive, right? Um, so that's historical. Um, I don't know if you see the glass falling, but that glass ceiling, is, that's history. Uh, 
So I, uh, and then the whole idea of, you know, if you think about the NHL, they're in playing the finals, and then, of course, there's the NBA and the Golden State Warriors playing the Cleveland Cavaliers tonight for the third game. And, it, and the reason I bring it up is because personally, because I've, I've worked with both coaches and, and I know um, the philosophy, uh, actually won championships with them, so it's interesting, but just following the Warriors and, and the idea that, that they, are, they, they are playing um, and then they kind of forgot who they were, then they remembered who they were and, and now they're playing at a high level. They, they're playing at such a spiritual level that most of the league is, you know, setting records, but it's really, people think about the basketball talent. I look at it as the energy of, of, of one mind, one breath. This is what uh, Phil Jackson and I have been talking about for all of the championship teams we had, is how to get everybody to act as one. How to get people to go beyond the illusion of separateness. How to get people to the point where where there's no individual, it's just we. Even though there's a me, there's a we in terms of just doing, sac sacrificing for other and stuff like that. So watching them, but just thinking about it from this point of view of how they approach the game is they have four core values. I don't know how many of you know what their core values are. Well, the first core value is joy. It's interesting, huh? And that's where they got back to playing and for fun, you know, for the love of the game. The second core value is mindfulness. Imagine that. <laughs> mindfulness. And then the third core value is compassion. Imagine that. That's something we talk about around here. <laughs> and then the fourth one is competition. So just look at the order. Competition is, is the last thing, but it's important, but it's balanced with compassion, with joy, with mindfulness. And what does mindfulness do? Mindfulness balances these qualities as well as helps to develop them or cultivate them. And so this idea of, and then if you watch and you listen to what the commentators are saying about the team, is they got a high basketball IQ. Hello, that's called wisdom. <laughs> and they don't force things. They see whatever is there, and then they respond. They let things speak to them, and then they make their wise decision. Isn't that interesting? On the go, in the middle. And then I remember um, hearing this saying that um, Coach uh, John Wooden, Hall of Fame coach of UCLA, his, one of his favorite sayings was, be quick but don't be in a hurry. So that you can actually be moving fast or you can be in your daily life and still have the eye of the hurricane and be able to do what you're doing without being in a hurry. Now, how do we get hurried? By, you know, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor. I didn't even mention the other three, which is worry and restlessness. Or I don't know how this is going to do, go. How am I doing? And doubt. The paralyzer. Doubt. And so you got to do a lot of thinking and reflecting and understanding and going back to basic fundamentals. So when I talked about mindfulness being um, steadiness of mind and mirror mind, and then I talked about uh, knowing that what works, what doesn't work, or what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, what's helpful, what is not helpful. And then the fourth one is the essentials. What's the basic fundamentals? You've got to understand. Well, if you're playing basketball, there's a thing called, uh, just like us, you've got to have space. So one of the principles of a sound offense is spacing. So that people have room to move. And then the other part of it is, you know, you want to get penetration. Or you have to move, you know, if you're moving this way, it's not helpful. You've got to be going towards the basket. And, and the object of the game is to score more points than the other team. Isn't that interesting? And so there's all of these principles that, so the mindfulness by itself is not enough. It has to have the wisdom or the clearly knowing of what the basic fundamentals are. It has to be grounded in right view. Wholesome intentions. Understanding what the essentials are, what the rules or the laws. And it's not just the laws of the game. It's the laws of the universe. Because this universe is lawful. And that if we see the universe is, is uh, being unlawful or unfriendly, this is what um, Albert Einstein said, if you, we see the universe as unfriendly, then 
we are going to use all our resources to destroy, uh, deny, uh, to, to, um, to, I guess, basically destroy and to ignore what's happening. And so part of what we have to do is we have to make that decision right away or on some deep level, you know, is the, is the universe lawful or not? So here's a quote. Says Einstein once quoted as saying, "The most important question you can ever ask is if the world is a friendly place." And he said Einstein went on to explain the meaning behind his quote, and here's what he said: "For if we decide the universe is unfriendly, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to achieve safety and power by creating bigger walls to keep out the unfriendliness." And of course, we're doing that with uh, Mexico, right? Um, and bigger weapons to destroy, we're doing that too, all that which is unfriendly. And I believe that we are getting to a place where technology is powerful enough that we may either completely isolate or destroy ourselves as well in this process. If we decide the universe is neither friendly nor unfriendly and that God is essentially playing dice with the universe, then we are simply victims to the random toss of the dice and our lives have no real purpose or meaning. But if we decide the universe is friendly, then we will use our technology, our scientific discoveries, and our natural resources to create tools and models for understanding that universe. Because power and safety will come through understanding its workings and its motives. It's pretty interesting, huh? So that makes me excited when I read that, and I know that a part of right view is that, is there's a lawfulness. So if we align with the way things are, guess what? We don't suffer so much, and we might even find peace and, and, and um, happiness and joy. And so that's, that's the path. That's what this path offers. And so mindfulness is, is obviously the heart of it, but we have to have the wisdom piece. And the way I like to talk about this process is that, you know, uh, You've, how many folks have done jigsaw puzzles or know what jigsaw puzzles are? Okay, so that's what we're doing. You know, with mindfulness, getting the, you know, seeing things clearly and, and, and getting the information and wisdom, telling us what, what information we need to do, wise reflection, and, and we're between the wisdom and the mindfulness 24-7, not just when we're sitting that we are collecting data. We're starting, we're putting pieces together. So we're working on a jigsaw puzzle and we, we're going along and then, you know, we keep trying, trial and error. That's how we do it. And then, you know, we're going through it and say, oh, I seen that piece. Then we, that's what mindfulness reminds us. We take that piece, we put it in there. Then we get a full picture of what's going and then we start on another one. And then we start pursuing how the universe works, because if you know how things work, then there's nothing to fear. And that's what we want to do, is we want to demystify, but at the same time, we want to live in the mystery, because some things are going to be beyond all human research, or, or, you know, as they talk about, the piece that goes beyond our understanding, that we're not going to be able to put everything in a linear context, because some of it is nonlinear. So it's like riding a bike. We're not going to be able to declare it, but we know there's something there. Even if we extrapolate, well, we don't know, but there's got to be something because of X, Y, and Z. Does that make any sense? So um, I'll just talk about one other thing I think that's uh, important, because I can get into the theory about in the seven this and the five that, and I don't want to, I know we have to talk about it at times, but right now I'd rather make it really more practical and how, how we are um, doing this thing. And so, so, of course, all you know that, you know, the work I do, most people want to know about performance. They want to know how to raise their game to the next level, how to perform. And another way of saying that is how to experience more joy and happiness and have more freedom uh, in our lives. To be, how to, can we be more creative? And so Sigmund Freud's definition of, of, of uh, psychological health was the idea that psychoanalysis was a process that helped people live, work, and play at their highest capacity. So that might be one way 
we look at that. But there is a gentleman by the name, he passed away, his name was Peter Drucker. And for folks like myself that was in the business world, he used to write the, the, the management textbooks and he, he did a lot of other things. He's very interesting. At 95, he was still working on five books. Very interesting guy and he ended up being a, a, a financier in England when he started out making a lot of money but he it wasn't satisfying so he left that career and he be, he went into um you know writing management books and getting involved in personal development so he wrote a book called managing oneself and part of the book talks about how, um in terms of of how does the wisdom and wonder work for us well we have to figure out who that masterpiece is or how do we perform and so he says how a person performs is a given just as what a person is good at or not good at is a given. So he talks about the idea of asking the question, am I a reader or a listener? Am I a reader or a listener? A listener. So Einstein, who was, uh, not Einstein, I'm sorry, Eisenhower, who was the uh, supreme commander of the Allied forces in World War II, and of course with D-Day, anniversary being the other day, you know, there's been a lot of stuff on TV. So he was a general, he was the supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe, and he was a reader. So what that means, he, he, he prepared, he, everything was structured, so when they did the press, when he had to work with the press uh, corps, he got all the questions before. So he had all this time to prepare, and he would go, and he would meet with them, and they thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then as he became president, he tried to emulate FDR and Truman. And so those two guys were listeners. And what that means is how he performs listening. They don't prepare. They just on their, they can think on their feet and they can just be spontaneous. And to me, that's coming out of the eye of the hurricane. That's when you're just present. You're, you're, you're mindful. You, you allow things to speak to you in their own language and then you respond based on what you're hearing and how you're seeing things. And so he thought as president he had to emulate them, and he tried that, and it was a disaster. So the, the same press corps that loved him hated him because he, he, he wasn't a listener, but he was trying to, trying to be who he wasn't. So can you understand the value of understanding how we perform? And that's just true. If we're a reader or we're a listener, then we have to, you have to be still and know. You have to observe yourself and see how how you, how you learn i mean how you how you perform that's really important and so lbj was a listener as a when he was in the senate very effective and then as the president he tried to be a reader because jfk was a reader and and as you can see he failed at that because he thought oh that's what a president's supposed to be and anytime you go and you try to be somebody other than who you are i don't think that's going to work not to mention how you feel. So it's really important that we know thyself. We know who we are. We know how we perform. And whether we're a listener or a reader, we need to know that. And, and sometimes you can tell by how you perform. So a lot of this is just watching and, and trying stuff out and see how it works. But I, I suspect, for me especially, when we can be still and know, when we can listen to that still small voice inside, that means the, the formal practice, but also just being in silence, just being with ourselves and then allowing our hearts to speak to us, then we start to get some inkling. At least that's how it worked for me. And so that's just the performing piece. And now the learning piece is really important. And they talk about how do I learn? So how do I perform? Either, you know, you know a reader or a listener. And how do I learn? Either you're a writer or a talker. So um, Churchill was a writer. Writers do not, as a rule, learn by listening and reading. They learn by writing because schools do not allow them to learn this way. They get poor grades. You know, and that's a whole other thing about multiple intelligences and how, how we learn. But the important thing was uh, that Churchill was a, he knew it, and he was a writer, and he wrote. And Beethoven was a talker. And some people learn by talking or, or by taking um, copious notes, for example. Uh, so he left behind a lot of that stuff. And then, so they prepare, but then they talk. They talk, and then by talking, they hear themselves, and they learn from that. Now, it's interesting because 
on, on several occasions now over the last several years, I've mentioned the fact that I listen to my talks and they're very inspiring. <laughs> and, 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 and people said, that's, that's weird, dude. You know, um, uh, what's up with that? And the interesting thing is I learn by talking, but the, here's the key. The key is when I'm speaking, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm allowing things to happen. I'm not trying to make things happen, and I'm not observing, how am I doing? Because ca I can't be, if I'm worried about how I'm doing, I'm not focused on what I'm doing. And so, and then you get into a flow of rhythm, you get into the zone, and you, it just happens. You don't know what's going to happen, but something's going to happen. So we, we want to create space to be, just like I talked about spacing on basketball or this idea of the space between stimulus and response and knowing that there's a wisdom inside that knows that is on a subconscious level getting the information and then the seeing and the behaving is, is spontaneous without a hair's breath in between. So when I start thinking, I'm going to break the flow. You don't have to take my word for it. Um, I'm going to read what, what Kobe said. So he said, this is when he scored 81 points in the game. He said, when you get into that zone, it's just a supreme confidence that you know what is going on. It's not a matter of if it's going in. In other words, you know it's going in. Everything slows down. You just have supreme confidence. When that happens, you really do not try to focus on what's going on around you because you could lose it in a second. You have to really try to stay in the present, not at anything break that rhythm. You get in the zone and just try to stay there. Because how do you stay there? By being like water. You just take whatever's coming and you just, in the moment you see and you do. And you don't think about your surroundings or what's going on with the crowd or the team. You're, you're kind of locked in. And this is what MJ said after he made the winning basket against, uh, in 1998 against, um, the Utah Jazz, he said, the crowd gets quiet and the moment starts to become the moment for me. That's part of that Zen Buddhism stuff. That's how we used to refer to my mindfulness. Once you get into the moment, you know when you are there. Things start to move slowly. You start to see the court very well. You start reading what the defense is trying to do. So once again, it's so me being a listener and understanding that by by understanding that I listen because I'm learning by listening to myself. So even though it seems weird based on what, what uh, Peter Drucker is saying, but I didn't have to wait for him to tell me that. I knew it worked. I don't need no validation. <laughs> I know it works, okay? <laughs> oh, that was pretty good. I'm going to keep that one. You know, and sometimes the opposite, okay, that didn't go so well, but I can, I can learn from that as well. But the, the sense of joy and excitement, knowing that there's going to be something there, but it's the energy, it's the, my intention to be of service, my intention to just share what I know because all that I give is given to me. If you want to learn something, you teach it. And so, does that make any sense? So, understanding the difference between a writer and a talker, and of course I can do both because I have, I, I, that's what I do, I mean I do both. Uh, in terms of learning, in terms of performing, I do both. Uh, but but it's important for us to understand those things. And of course, the other thing is, as I talked about with, with Steve Kerr and, and the Warriors, what, are, what are, are our core values? And you can investigate that, because what Gandhi said, what he said he has a formula. He says, our beliefs become our thoughts, our thoughts become our words, our words become our actions, our actions become our habits. Our habits become our values, and our values become our destiny. So that's an equation. So you can go in there, you say, okay, my value for, so for me, love is really important, curiosity, truth, seeking the truth. So if that's my value, then that's going to affect those other things. It's going to affect my behavior. It's going to affect my thoughts. It's going to affect my belief or just not having a belief because belief becomes a filter. So when we believe something, it allows us to see things, but there's things we don't see because we get on those glasses. Like if I, I like to use this analogy, if I have on the heat glasses, y'all are in trouble. You know, I'm going to be, oh, you know. And if I have on the love glasses, which I have on, I, I think, then y'all are good. 
it's all good. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? But this is what we do, and so we need to know. But, you know, when you wear glasses or, or contacts, you forget you have them on. So this practice is, is saying, okay, given how I'm behaving, right, given where my destiny is, I got to reflect on what are my values, what values, because you do what you value. So we had this idea, this is my value, but if you ain't doing it, that ain't what your value is. That's an idea, but it's not actuality. And so this idea of understanding that we are responsible for what we hold in mind and being spiritual beings, what we hold in mind becomes so. So we're learning all the time, whether we are aware of it or not, and whatever we hold in mind, we are creating either good or we're creating something else. And so it seems like a good idea to know what we're thinking about. Because, you know, I like to quote the philosopher Dr. Dre when he said, I have my mind on money and money on my mind. That's a form of meditation. <laughs> so what's your mind on? Not just now, but moment to moment, especially when you have the big game moments, when you've got to really lock in. And I would say all moments are big game moments because this moment sets up the next. So the only time we have is now, and so the question is, are we present or are we not? So there's, there's way more I could talk about, but I think that's probably a good place to stop and just to reiterate the idea of we can create, we can go into whatever we're doing with this sense of wonder. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to learn something. It's going to be great. And that this process of, of, you know, when we talk about the foundations of mindfulness, we're talking about the body, talking about feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, because you can see your reaction. If it's pleasant, you're going to move this way. If it's unpleasant, if it's neither, either you're going to be poised and just observing with equanimity and still be engaged, or you're going to space out. And I say we spend most of our time between anxiety and boredom. And so when we're bored, then we gotta, we got to have an intention. we got to have an interest. we got to get engaged. And then we talk about um, the mind states. You know, if, the, if there's greed in the mind, if there's hatred in the mind, if there's not confusion or delusion, then that's probably, you know, probably not going to see things clearly, and it's probably going to be not a good as result if you want it. But if there's non-greed or compassion, or let me say generosity or renunciation, loving kindness, compassion, then that's a different thing. And if we are understanding or we seeing clearly what's going on, then we can respond to it more skillfully. And so that's, that's pretty much what it comes down to is how do we enter, 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 energize ourselves or how do we create a positive uh, optimum, a mindset of optimum optimism and hope well how do we relate something happens can, we can relate to it in a dynamic energetic way where we can say what is this, this is going to be great there's something for me to get here it's a different psychology so that's what I'm offering tonight and uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it so Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.